Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is the podcast where we typically have interesting long-form discussions with a researcher or a practitioner of behavioral science to explore why we do what we do. And in this episode, we do that, but... We amped it up. In this episode, we spoke with not one, but two guests, Joe Marks and Steve Martin. Steve Martin? The Steve Martin? Like the wild and crazy guy, Steve Martin? (laughs) Okay, so uh, he is a Steve Martin, but he is not the world-famous comedian, actor, and banjo player. Although... Uh, he might play banjo. I, yeah. I don't know. We didn't ask him that. So, you know, it was, the, you know. He might. He could be a banjo player. Could be a banjo player. Yeah. So this Steve Martin, however, is much more important for our purposes because he's a professor at Columbia Graduate School of Business and a researcher who's worked with Robert Cialdini mm. on several uh, papers and the book, Yes, 50 Scientifically Proven Ways to Be Persuasive, which by the way, is a great read. Yeah, totally. Okay, so this Steve Martin has lots of great research to share, and we're glad that he could join us. But but what about Joe Marks? Is it possible that he's related to Groucho, Chico, Harpo, Harpo and Zeppo? Tim, really? Are you going? You're, you're going to two strikes, man. Oh, two strikes. What? Come on. His name is spelled <laughs> different, and and second, he holds a teaching and research position at the University College and MIT. And third, this Joe Marks is the grandson of the 20th century British physician who helped reform the National Health Service in England. Man, these guys are really impressive. Okay, so you got that one right. Okay. All right, uh, you're, you're doing okay there. All right. Okay, the listeners should know that the reason that we recorded both of them for this episode is that they recently co-authored a terrific book called Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why. Anyone who needs to communicate, whether you're in marketing, sales, human resources, politics, customer service, customer experience, should pick up this book and read it cover to cover. It's really well written with lots of great research and lots of practical applications. I couldn't agree more. It's a great read, and these two guys were great to talk with. It will definitely make our 2020 Behavioral Groove's top 10 book list. Definitely. Pretty sure, right? Yeah. Um, But before we get to our discussion with Steve and Joe, we've had a bunch of really nice reviews recently, and we want to take a couple minutes to just share some of the comments that these listeners have about Behavioral Grooves. Yeah, that's a good idea, Kurt. So we got a five-star rating and some very kind words from Clyde Fess, who lives in the United States. And Clyde Fess said, Tim and Kurt explore a variety of different topics, all related to how we behave and how we make decisions. Spoiler alert, we are not logical as humans. They host researchers and behavioral economists to discuss subjects like bias, incentives, recognition, and motivation. This is one of my top five podcasts I listen to on a weekly basis. Subscribe today. Wow. Thank you, Clyde Fest. Thank you. No kidding. Yeah, that was yeah. nice. Oh, I, I wonder if he's the only one who thinks that. No. Oh, wait. No, <laughs> no we have another one. Not. There's one more that we want to hear from today, and we want to put it on air today because we want to make sure that it doesn't get too far away from the episode that it's referencing. So this comment and five-star rating comes from Dima in Germany. Dima had some nice things to say about our Behavioral Grooves episode 107 with Rory Sutherland. Dima said... I really enjoyed the episode with Rory. You can never get enough of him. I like that you sum up the talk at the end and even twice. It's a joy listening to you. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Dima. Yeah, no kidding. Thank you so much, Dima. And thanks to Clyde Fess as well. And we promise to read other reviews in future episodes because they're all so fun. Yeah. And I'd like to point out the idea of the recap at the end of the episode. We call it that the, the bonus track. And that was an idea from a listener as well. Yeah, it was from listener Fred Bomber who sent us a message encouraging us to add a summary of the points that we've discussed during the episode. He said that he listened to the podcast while doing chores around the house, specifically mowing the lawn in the summer. And he said he didn't always have something to write down the key takeaways and that uh, he would really like a summary to be able to do that. And so that sparked the idea that became the foundation for our bonus track. We added on to that with our groove idea for the week, and we hope that you're enjoying both of those. Okay. So is it time to get to our discussion with Steve and Joe? One more thing. (laughs) If you'd like to have your review read during the introduction of the podcast, just jump down to the bottom of the Behavior Groove section on your app and the pod chaser that you're using and write down what you think of behavioral grooves. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty easy. I think it is. I'd also like to hear how long it takes listeners to actually write a review. You... Okay. I'm, I'm just curious about this. I, I would be willing to bet. I'd be willing to bet that someone can write a re- review in less than 49 seconds. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so you're betting me? You want to bet I'll, me? I'll bet you, I'll bet you lunch. If, if, if listeners come back and say, I can write a review in less than 49 seconds, then, then I'll, I'll buy lunch, you lunch. Lunch with a beer. And oh, you're on. Okay, all right. All right. I'll lunch with a beer and you're on. And so, <laughs> listeners, if you write a review and you do it in less than 49 seconds, I will buy Tim lunch with a beer. Yeah. And if you write a review, but it takes you longer than 49 seconds, Tim will buy me lunch with a beer. So if you like me, just do a nicely (laughs) well-thought review and take your time. And if you like Tim, just do a crappy half-ass job and just get it done. There you go. This is going to become like, uh, who? this is a prom thing, you know? It's a prom (laughs) king deal. Oh, man. All right. right. So the bet is on. So listeners, (laughs) let us know how long it takes you to write the review, and we will have some fun with that in a future episode. Yes, we will. Okay. With that, it is time to sit back with your favorite messenger beverage and enjoy our conversation with Steve Martin and Joe Marks. Steve Martin and Joe Marks, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves podcast. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Tim. Brilliant to be here. Thank you very much for having us. Oh, yeah, we, we are excited. We are here. excited. We should actually just introduce uh, voices. So, uh, Steve. Hello to Steve. Hello there. I am Steve. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe. Joe, give us a hello. Hi, Kurt and Tim. I'm Joe. All yeah, right. great. Okay, there good deal. We go. So, let's start with a speed round. Um all right, so I'm gonna. First one's going to you, Steve. So, bicycle or unicycle? Uh, bicycle. Bicycle. All right, Joe. Coffee or tea? Or oh, tea? Ah, of okay, course, of course. There <laughs> we go. Yeah. Yeah. All right, going back to you, you, Steve. A year without a mobile phone or a year without a laptop? Uh, you had to phone. have. You had to have one. Mobile phone. <laughs> All right. You, you would you would choose the mobile phone or get rid of? No, the no, mobile no, no. Phone? Get rid of the mobile phone, but I'd keep the laptop, please. Wow. Okay. That, that's that's pretty terrific. Okay, here's a toss-up, uh, maybe maybe for both of you. Which is more valuable, trustworthiness or truthfulness? 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have a conversation about that. I think today. Ah, that sounds good. Let's have a conversation about that. that that's a good way to get started. Uh, Joe, you look like you're kind of on the on the verge of jumping in on that. Why don't, why don't yeah, you well, I think it started? really depends on your your perspective and what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve. Because we can see quite clearly that truthfulness and trustworthiness are not always the same thing. Uh, where people may be clearly lying, they're getting fact checked in court, lying, and yet uh, specifically supporters of theirs seem to still regard them in uh, in, in kind of high regard. Um, and, and, and trust them. So what's going on there? And uh, it's one of these questions that seems to be puzzling society at the moment. Academics and, and you know, political commentators are, are baffled and, and trying to put t- together some explanation. And the truth of it is that is, uh, trustworthiness is really a prediction of somebody's future good faith. It's not this kind of complex weighting of evidence that uh, we, we use to, uh, to, to assess trust uh, truthfulness. You know, we're not kind of going to the bottom line of everyone's detailed sentences and trying to work out, well, does the evidence suggest that this is likely to be 40% false or, you know, 30% yeah. true? What is that computation? They're not doing that. We're relying on much more simple heuristics when assessing trustworthiness because it's this kind of intuitive, vague, abstract judgment that people are very good at making and have to make on very limited information very quickly. Um, well, wouldn't... Wouldn't truthfulness, though, be the a, a factor in that prediction of of future trustworthy? I mean, if I'm looking at somebody and I'm going, all right, even if I'm a, a believer in them or a supporter of them, and I go, well, that's not true, but I, I'll, I'll withhold that judgment and, and look forward to the future, doesn't that start weighing down after a while? And yet somehow it doesn't seem like that's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is true. I mean, we rely on people's past behavior to predict future behavior. Yeah. Um, but but I think there's a few key uh, kind of caveats to that. One okay. is, um, you know, uh, a lie about something s- seemingly kind of doesn't uh, direct towards your core principles and values and judgments and the things that people hold you to. Uh, whereas, you know, if... if for example, uh, Boris Johnson was to turn around tomorrow and say, "Actually, we're not doing Brexit," or Trump was, <laughs> you know, to 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 go completely against his core uh, values and principles. Then those people who were regarding him as trustworthy would not anymore. They but they excuse the lies that seem sort of circum, uh, you know, sort of around the fact uh, that that are kind of seen as a means to an end to get to. Uh, a place that actually they want to be going, that they want to see society going in. They excuse a little lie if they think that the the underlying core position is one that they like. Well, right. I, I, well actually, I think it's the case that sometimes they'll excuse not just a little lie, but a big lie. Um, you know, there's, there's no doubt, um, you know, the Supreme Court here in the United Kingdom, uh, you know, decreed that Johnson lied when he prorogued our parliament uh, back in October of last year. Um, in fact, Joe, Joe and I ran a little study, a survey of sorts, with, with leave and remain voters. And, and mm. all of them, the vast majority, you know, over 75% of them, uh, when asked, do you think that Boris Johnson lied um, to the Queen, to pro government, you know, they, they, they said, yes, he absolutely did. Um, and then when we asked, so how does that affect your trustworthiness of Boris Johnson? 
Um, it had no effect for those people that had voted to leave the European Union. So it wasn't just a little lie. This is a you know, this is a big whopper. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of people, regardless of their political allegiance, um, you know, reckon that he lied, and clearly he did. Um, the relative trustworthiness of, of Johnson. Uh, wasn't tainted at all with his supporters because fundamentally his lie served an underlying goal that they had all signed up to. So sometimes we are willing for them, to, uh, for people to lie to us, provided it's the kind of lie that goes in the direction that we ideally we want to end to up in. Right. Exactly. Which is kind of a form of confirmation bias in, in, in some ways, isn't it? That, that we're, we're just, we're so uh, attached to finding something that supports and confirms what we already believe or, or want to believe that we're willing to forego things like the truth. Yeah. I, I, I guess what's the, the, the amplification here, though, Kurt and Tim, is the fact that um, you know confirmation bias often is is done in private, often, isn't it? It's just like you know we mm-hmm. we, we you know the, the person that we only really need to admit confirmation bias to is ourselves. We don't have to do it publicly, but in this instance, we're actually asking people, you know, you know they're, they're being quite clear. Yes, he lied. I recognise he lies, but I still think this. That's uh, that's a that's pretty extreme version of confirmation bias when people are willing to publicly state that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this is this is one of the the tenets that you guys talk about in your book, right? So, Messenger is the is is the new book that you guys have just come out with. It is uh by fantastic. We have it. We as, loved it. It, it yeah. was a uh, top pick of ours. Made our t- made our top 10. Made our top 10 yeah. for 2019. So, mm-hmm. congrats on that. Not that that means anything except for, <laughs> for maybe to the 10 listeners that we have. Um but no, so uh, tell us a little bit about how did how did messengers come about? What was what was the impetus for? It? How did you guys get that kernel of an idea? Well, perhaps I'll I'll start, and then Joe, you should uh, you should you should come in. Um, so, Kurt, Tim, I you, you know about me, and you know about my um, my long term allegiance with with Bob Cialdini. So yep. I, I've been an influence and persuasion researcher for quite a few years now, working uh, you know under the stewardship of. Of, of Bob Cialdini, um, and one of the things that you know we've we've increasingly noticed these last few years is Bob did uh, just an incredibly brilliant job of disseminating what are the factors that go into a message that increase the likelihood that someone will say yes to it. Um, but Joe and I would recognize, you know, you know, we've got a, an office here in London. We, you know, a team of behavioral scientists, we'd often have lunch together. And, and we come up with these examples often of, of where people would say something that really made little sense, yet people were still being engaged with it. And so we wonder, well, it's kind of interesting here. It's, it's not just what you put into a message. There's something here about who delivers the message, that seems to be having a significant, in fact, we'd go so far as to say an increasingly significant influence over whether it gains traction. And all of us have experienced this in our everyday lives. We've all had a situation where, you know, we've had an idea, we go to the office, you know, we tell a colleague about this idea or mention it to, you know, someone, and they look at us in that strange way, they think, nah, that's really not a good idea at all. And yet, a couple of days later, someone else comes along, says the exact same thing, and I can see you laughing here because <laughs> you know where uh, this is going. Yeah. Yeah. All too and, familiar. And, 
Yeah, all too familiar. Someone says the exact same thing, and all of a sudden, the same audience that rejected roundly your suggestion two days ago are enthusiastically embracing the exact same idea when it came from someone else. So it can't be the message that is carrying sway here. There must be something about the quality of the messenger or the the trait or feature of the messenger that's allowing people to to say, well, to hell with the content. That probably matters less now. If this person is saying it, then I'll follow it. And what we found... Well, was there an experience? Uh, It almost sounds like certainly your observation and your your ability to kind of look at the human condition and and see this incongruity is is a catalyst, right? But I'm wondering, Steve, was there a specific... uh, experience that just really grabbed you and said, oh man, we've got it. We've really got to tell this story. Well, it seems that every single day in in the newspapers, (laughs) there there, there seems to be some sort of headline that says, you know, X said Y believes Z. Uh, And you think, well, actually, really? Is that that true? I mean, personally, there's been at least hundreds of dozens of times, I'm sure, where I've presented an idea or come up with some concept over the years and people have looked and went, no, nah, I don't think about it. And then suddenly, you know, a couple of weeks later, you go, actually, I'm sure I said something about that. And, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, that's all the so time. I, I say something and then, and then it gets just and then, I, and, and then and Tim then says it, it and then and everybody, everybody loves it. But there was something scientifically intriguing about this as well, because, you know, one of the things that Joe and I did early on when we were having this discussion was to say, well, there must be tons of research out there looking at this mm. and and actually there is there's six seven decades of you know largely social psychological research but in in other fields of behavioral science as well but what was really interesting to us is that no one had really synthesized that information um you know in a way that bob cialdini did with the social influence theory you know it, it was it was actually back back to the late no actually early 1980s when a couple of researchers came up with their, you know, uh, five characteristic model of what makes a, 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 a good messenger. Um, and of course, you know, that 40 odd years that's actually passed since then, you know, extraordinary amounts of new research has been conducted, not, not just standard social psychological research, but, you know, uh, behavioral economic research, neurological information, and neuroscientific research as well. So that was kind of like the, the, the platform for us to say, well, there's there's an opportunity here to kind of really delve into this and and see what comes out and 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 we've what we think we've done is or like to think we've done is come up with a perhaps a more contemporary uh, updated version of who a society listens to or is more likely to listen to um, who they're likely to reject and and the reasoning why um, and at no point throughout throughout the book do, do Joe and I ever really consider the merits of what's being said, the content of the message. We're we're just interested in why can this person, this messenger, deliver this message in a way that it gains traction? And someone else comes along and says the exact same thing, and the same audience will reject it. That sounds crazy, but yeah, it was it was so great. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of the book is is this beautiful confluence that you've always got going of anecdotes and tremendous amounts of research. I mean, and 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 so much as as you mentioned is contemporary. You know, you're not relying on the studies from 1983. Um, of course, if they were groundbreaking and they still hold up, then absolutely was you you reference them. But the references are just terrific uh, with with the magnitude and the and the variety 
uh, that you go to, as you as you said. And I think that that's that's one of the things that really makes this book different from a lot of other uh, stuff on the market uh, today. So uh, when it comes to to our listeners, I just want them to think about, wow, you're you've got. All, you're drawing from a wide variety of different fields and really building a case in a, in a cogent and sophisticated way. And it's entirely readable. I, you know, it was just really fun to read too. So it, so, so we, had, we had a lot of fun. Okay, but I want to get back to the, the, the Marshall McLuhan uh, comment, this whole idea of uh, the messenger. I mean, in, in the 1960s, Canadian Marshall McLuhan said, uh, the medium is the message. And, and you guys are kind of claiming that sort of is dead, that the new model is the messenger is the message. Is that, is that, a, fair, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I don't think I'd go so far as to say the old model's dead, replace it with our new, better model, and, <laughs> and scrap that. <laughs> I think certainly medium matters, and you know, there's you know great evidence showing that face-to-face -face communication, for example, um, can be up to three times more persuasive than an email, um, because there's kind of the the direct directness of it you're speaking to somebody you see their humanity you have this social obligation not to say no in the face-to-face -face interaction it's much easier to ghost somebody uh, on a text or email uh, i think there's, there's a lot going on um and and similarly um you know, we're, we're in this world now where there's all kinds of mediums, like um, on, on Twitter and in the news, you have kind of information being presented rapidly in, in very short amounts of characters. Um, yeah, and podcasts, you know? <laughs> exactly, which is a nice, lengthier, more detailed uh, chat and, and a version I prefer, I think. But um, I, I think that still matters. Um, but I think in conjunction with that uh, is is the kind of neglected side of the messenger um, and it's specifically the kind of traits that make an effective messenger. Yeah, um, so let's so talk about that for a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so this, this is the kind of second part of, of where Steve was leading into. So I, I guess we were thinking about this phenomenon that happens where, you know, I see it all the time hanging around with Steve. People will uh, take on board exactly what he says. If I say it, then they don't. Um, but <laughs> sorry, Joe, um, were you saying something? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and and it, you know, you, you do feel like a Cassandra in that case. And it, the question is, well, what makes somebody a, a good, effective messenger or a Cassandra? Um, and that knowledge is is perhaps relevant to improve one's own kind of communication and persuasion skills, um, but also, you know, and helpful in, in helping us to spot where we might be listening to somebody not based on the content of, of their message or the, the kind of wisdom of it, um, but in fact, just because of who they are. So, so the, the, the book is really dedicated to examining the factors um, that make us receptive to a messenger. And we divide it into two parts. So we have status traits um, and connectedness traits. So status is essentially earned, uh, we, we describe through one of four routes, um, and essentially gives people uh, some kind of value that means that they're worthy of being listened to. Some way they're, they're get, they've got themselves ahead of us um, and so are useful. Uh, they can make for kind of powerful allies or fierce foes. Um, and connectedness, on the other hand, you know, they're, they're not really trying to get ahead. In fact, the opposite. They're trying to kind of get along with us. We see them as a friend, somebody to cooperate with. Um, they show us kind of benevolent intent. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, we, we kind of look at these two broad uh, categories of messenger and dive deep into, well, how do you earn yourself status? How do you earn yourself connectedness? Um, and that really is the kind of uh, layout and structure of, of the book. One of the 
One of the interesting studies that you brought up that I find that was just fascinating for me because I would not have anticipated, I guess I might have anticipated it, but it was the jaywalking study uh, that you mentioned that, you know, the people who were better dressed, uh, more people would follow them and, and jaywalk than people wearing denim, um, various different pieces of it. And so status from that perspective takes on a whole lot of other roles as opposed to just the a positional status, right? There are other other markers that that kind of identify that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 what that's actually doing uh, that in, in that case, that uniform or that business suit, for want of a better word, is it's sending a signal about someone's status within a society. Um, and and often, you know, we're in this situation, particularly these days, where it's becoming increasingly hard, difficult to kind of navigate our way through all the information that's presented to us, all the data off of it, often very conflicting data. And so, you know, we'll often replace that question, what is the right thing to do here, um, with the question of, well, who looks like they're doing what the right thing to do is here, and I'll just follow them. And, and you know, that idea that, you know, three times as many people, and by the way, this was a study that goes back to the mid-60s. You know, three times as many people were willing to follow someone wearing a suit into traffic against the red light, against the law, um, than the same person dressed in in a, in a denim jacket. Um, yeah. And you know, and and we find that it's not just so. The message here isn't just don't put a business suit on rather than a denim, denim jacket. It's it's what those cues are. You know, we we find similar with with cars. You know, um, that wonderful study that Anthony Dube. Uh, ran in San Francisco all those years ago where, you know, he he wanted to understand how quickly someone would hoot their horn if a car in front had actually kind of broken down at a crossroads. And, and he found that the status of the car mattered, even though people were much more inclined to think that they, they'd they hoot quicker at a high-status car, they, they hooted much, much quicker at a low-status car. Um, so these... I guess features of status. In this instance, it could be a status that, that communicates our competence, uh, or in, in the case of the car, communicates perhaps our socioeconomic position. They're, they're important. We, we use these pieces of information to determine whether or not, uh, if someone then says something or makes a recommendation or acts in a certain way, whether they're worth following. It's one of the reasons why, you know, when you meet someone for the very first time, one of the first questions you can ask is, well, what do you do? Essentially, what you're actually saying is, where are you on the socioeconomic hierarchical status compared to me? That's what's really yeah. going on there. Um, so these are important, yeah. and we'll use them for proxies to determine whether or not someone is worth listening to or not. I grew up in uh, in St. Louis, and uh, in oh, St. Louis with the arch yes and uh, the 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 people from St. Louis don't ask what do you do. The first question they ask is, where did you go to high school? And that is the socioeconomic peg that that drives all the further discussions because it identifies whether you went to a public school or a private school, and 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 w what part of town you grew up in, and if it was a it was it was a, a all, all you know single gender or I mean there's all kinds of uh, uh, boxing and segmenting that happens with the answer to that that question. Yeah, um, I, I, I think yeah. It, I think it's fascinating, and it allows us to quickly answer that question: Do you have status over me? Or am I connected with you? Um, mm. Which, you know, are those two, what we call hard and soft traits that Joe was talking about a few moments ago. 
Well, let's talk a little bit. We talked a little bit about status, and I know there's a, a bunch more there, but connectedness. So, so what is it about connectedness, and, and what, are, what, what did you find out about how that influences how people perceive the, the message that people are sending? Yeah, I guess the, the equivalent question would be uh, when you meet somebody for the first time, oh, who do you know? I also know them. And mm. you realize that you have these mutual connections. Another one that's very common and, and kind of natural uh, to us. Um, and really, it's, you know, it's serving to find that connectedness between the two and find where we have similarities, people we share in common who we perhaps hopefully like. Uh, if, if we decide somebody maybe is connected to people we dislike, maybe we're, we're going to associate them negatively. Um, but essentially, it's trying to, you know, form that uh, cooperative allegiance uh, with mm. somebody else. And, you know, we're humans. We, we form bonds very quickly and easily. It's uh, kind of a fundamental desire of humankind um, to do that because we work better together. Um and, and can achieve goals that we just couldn't alone. So uh, we, we look for certain signals of benevolence, um, such as warmth and uh, and trustworthiness, um, that, that are incredibly important to then decide who we're likely to listen to and not. Um, and, and so for an example uh, of, of warmth, then, uh, you know, we can see it in, uh, in all manners of areas. It, it seems to be those who are able to show a kind of kind positivity uh, and, and rapport with other people. They show that they care about the other. Um, they express concern for their, for their welfare. Um, these people are, are, you know, doing much better in various areas in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the labor market where they offer and kind of will will work better together more productively with others they they'll kind of be rewarded favors more often and even get hired more often mm-hmm. um you know one number one tips for a job interview is to kind of make eye contact smile uh, be polite and uh, and courteous and and you know these are, are kind of trivial factors in a way when you think about the experience skills that we really look for when we're thinking about hiring somebody um, but they matter a great deal yeah, I wonder how much, uh, what part of these, uh, both, both sets of traits, both the status and the connectedness, are, are anthropological? How, how, how deeply are they ingrained in our DNA, do you think? Um, no, well, yeah. Well, I think they, they are linked to some of these evolutionary factors. Um, but perhaps before we talk about that, it might be a good idea just to set out what those four traits within the you know, hard messenger domains and the four traits within the soft messenger domains. Uh, domain yeah. is so that's you know, as, Joe, as, as, as Joe suggested earlier. So, you know, hard messengers are these messengers that seek to essentially establish some sort of status over their audience before they deliver a message, and they do this uh, in one of four ways uh, they do it through their socioeconomic position, so essentially how rich and famous they are. Uh, we follow the lead of those that we see perhaps as rich and famous sometimes as a, as a good signal of whether or not we should. Listen to someone, uh, competence or or perceived competence—the extent to which someone uh, sounds like an expert, looks like an expert, is an expert—can uh, influence our reaction to their message. Dominance is the third one. Dominance is an interesting one because very much I think uh, 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 a personality trait, you know, a dispositional characteristic. These are the kind of messengers that just. You know, they have that attitude that they need to win at all costs. Everything is a competition. And I'm not interested in collaborating with you. I'm interested in being dominant over you of, you know, almost kind of like uh, coercing you into some sort of uh, uh, receptivity to my message. And we all know characters like that. And one or two names come to mind immediately for all of us. <laughs> yes. And the fourth 
hard trait is is attractiveness. You know, sometimes there are people that have been, you know, blessed genetically, and because of their good looks, uh, their 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 symmetry, their youthfulness, and interestingly, their average as well is 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 one of the characteristics of attractiveness mm. um, we, we may be more predisposed to listen to them and so if you think about attractiveness you think about perhaps dominance from a certain perspective those are um, you know arguably kind of more ingrained evolutionary uh, in in their nature whereas you know anyone I guess could through their hard work become an expert or you know become rich or famous um, so those perhaps are, are more societally endorsed or, or gained. And then by contrast, the connected uh, effects are warmth, you know, as Joe's already spoken about, those that seek to, you know, uh, you know, signal their benevolence rather than their status over others. Uh, vulnerability is a second one. One way that we can sometimes, you know, arrange for people to listen to us is to express some sort of, you know, vulnerability or, or weakness that we actually have or uh, disadvantage that can often engage and connect people to us. Trustworthiness is the third one, kind of where we started out. And then finally, charisma. Charisma is a really interesting one, that ability to, you know, essentially connect with an audience in such a way that, you know, there's almost like a unifying goal that you engender people towards. And what's really mm. interesting about charisma from a scientific perspective is it's, it was only a short while ago, 2016, I think it was, when the, the, the social scientific community actually agreed upon um, a, a consensus for an agenda of what charisma actually is. So those are the four hard, four soft effects, and we consider them not I am one or I am the other, but more as kind of dials um, that, you know, depending if you know, they're signaled in the right way and at the right time and in the right context, can significantly increase the likelihood that a message will be uh, listened to and, and accepted regardless of its merits or truthfulness. That's the yeah. really interesting thing. Well, it, and it was interesting too, because you talked about the, in the book, you, you talked about sometimes that some of those things given the context backfired, right? And so that there were, there were examples of this where I, I can't remember the, I think it was Safeway, the, the, the grocery stores, or, or if that was the one, I'm not sure where they, they, they train their, their people to be, um, you know, smile and, and, and be, be forthcoming and all this kind of thing. And yet there was some backfire in how people interpreted that and, and various different things. So context matters in this matter, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and in that particular example, it was particularly uh, female attractive uh, servers who started to then get harassed because the, the male customers just took it as a come on. They thought this <laughs> lovely lady is being very flirty with me. She obviously is into me. I'm going to give her my number. It's that overconfident <laughs> male <laughs> um, stereotype. Where, where our minds go, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yeah, little did they realize that actually she was being forced to make eye contact and smile. Uh, and, and if she didn't, would suffer some sanctions. Um, so th there's an example of where, you know, a certain kind of very rough and rigid way of trying to implement these messenger effects can indeed backfire and result in lawsuits <laughs> in, in the extreme case. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in, in each chapter, I think we try and kind of put forward the um, costs and benefits. Uh, and, and, you know, they're from an evolutionary perspective it's it's likely to happen that you know otherwise we would have all evolved to be the same way um there's going to be some benefit to to certain traits and some cost to other traits at times 
um, specifically uh, with regard to kind of dominance and warmth or, or vulnerability, these these kind of trade off a lot of the time, um, where you can kind of take a harder versus a softer approach. And actually, uh, you know, some of the very interesting recent research coming out of um, Denmark has been showing that this uh, context uh, really affects when we listen to dominant types. So particularly in times of kind of social conflict, competition and anxiety, uh, we see people are much more likely to want to elect a dominant type of leader um, who can kind of be combative and then lead, lead their group in a fight. Um, whereas in kind of calm, assurance times, and we prefer a soft messenger who's able to, you know, cooperate with others, make alliances, um, get people to, to collaborate. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's very intriguing as to, uh, as to those kind of contextual factors. Well, when these traits might be useful and, and when less so. I guess it's probably not going to be lost. Yeah. I think it, so. So I, I don't think it'll be lost on a number of your listeners, probably a large number of them that, you know, these dominant characters, um, how they essentially provoke a context and an environment of uncertainty and, and anxiety and un, you know an unrest, knowing that doing so allows their predisposed dominant character to almost kind of step up and be the, the hero to solve the very conflict that they actually created in the first place. So um, that 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 and we've seen. You look at both of our countries. You look at both of our countries right. in, in the past elections that have happened, and you can kind of you can go to that. You can go that a, a lot of the anxiety that has been developed out, particularly in in the U.S. Uh, you know, in in the whole immigration component, which you know, for many years, immigrants were viewed as a very positive infl- impact on on our country, and and the message. That got shifted there, and then, uh, as you said, Donald Trump. Uh, well, you didn't say that, but Donald Trump. I, I you think know, you just said it, but I I think think I we should get it, it out on the table. Yeah, you know, took <laughs> that that anxiety around that and kind of built on that, and he has a, I would, I would say, a very domineering uh, persona. So yeah, what's, yeah. What's really interesting is, is that, I mean, the UK and uh, and the US are probably the obvious examples. Highly individualistic mm-hmm. countries generally. But you see it happen in collective cultures as well. So I'm thinking here about Brazil. I'm thinking about China. Equally, yeah. they have similar situations where they've got, you know, very dominant characters as leaders that will often uh, point to, you know, unrest, conflict, challenge um, to essentially legitimize their personality <laughs> uh, yeah. and 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 the want and need for it. So yeah, it's not a northern hemisphere thing or a, in this instance it's very much I think in this instance a, a a human characteristic to to want to kind of seek out those you know dominant assured messengers when when we feel you know anxious or or afraid. Yeah. So I want to keep going on this this political uh, stuff. Uh, you, you guys have have been doing some some new. You have some new observations to share, right? Yeah. So we, as Steve mentioned, we did the kind of UK election uh, and and specifically looking at trustworthiness uh, in the context of uh, uh, Boris Johnson proving Parliament. But we also kind of measured uh, the other politicians uh, on on all of these messenger traits that we list. Um, and there were some kind of interesting patterns, and it kind of largely uh, supports previous uh, theory showing that 
you know, liberals are more likely to kind of tend towards warmth and uh, softer traits and uh, conservatives are kind of powering ahead with more dominant, uh, harder traits. Um, and, and, you know, that was actually... Uh, I think very robust that uh, that, that that finding, um, but we've done it here in the UK, and we've also been looking in the US at the uh, Democratic Party uh, elections the, for the for the nominee. Um, and again, you know, it's it's just fascinating to see these kind of patterns emerge in ways that are kind of somewhat predictable, but actually paint a much more nuanced picture of what's going on than mm. just the kind of one line approval rating. Um, looking at specific traits is, uh, is just much more informative if you have the right traits to be looking at. Um, and so in particular there, then we find, uh, you know, Joe Biden and, and Bernie Sanders listed as, uh, you know, the most prominent candidates. They're very well known. They've got that name recognition, which does carry a lot of weight. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're the heavyweights. They're credible. Um, but actually then Biden's doing far less well on other very important traits, including um, competence and, and trustworthiness. Um, where he does well is warmth. So that's kind of interesting and fits, again, with this old man stereotype of your kind of warm but incompetent grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and funnily, Bernie Sanders doesn't have that. He doesn't suffer from that same stereotype. He, he's he's uh, seen as competent, charismatic. He's, you know, uh, doing pretty well, according to our messenger traits. Um, but, uh, you know, it's going to... You know, be, be a, uh, perhaps a disadvantage that he's, you know, the risky choice and coming from a more extreme political position. So that's, yeah. a, you know, an example where the messenger and the message, you know, really need, you know, might have to align. <laughs> so if the, if, the um, if, if chaotic times tend to produce more dominant styles uh, in, in the leaders, uh, and it's still a very chaotic time. Is it possible that the liberals are missing the boat on this? Mm, yeah, quite possibly. But I, th I think there's there needs to be some, uh, and, and I recognize the primaries start pretty soon, um, but I, I think there will need very, very quickly to be some sort of coherence or, or coalesce around a, a central appealing message um, you know, there's there's seven or eight candidates still. There's quite a disparity in terms of the the centricity or the extreme left of, the, of their message. So, um, yeah, I think a combination. Joe's exactly right. Of you know, the right messenger, but also that kind of consensus about what the right message is is is, is going to be important. Um, and a good backstory as well. Actually, interestingly, yep. um, you know, we we wrote about this uh, a couple of months ago. Um, that you know, often. You know, our ability to connect to and, and be willing to kind of listen and support a messenger is often contingent on the backstory that they actually uh, they, they tell. And so, you know, I think there's probably um, some work to be done there and some opportunity as well. Uh, you know, is, is that, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Is that backstory about connectedness more than or, or is it does it does it matter if it's that hard part or is it that soft part that is is there or, or again is that contextual i'm just trying to imagine that you know I, I would think the backstory would want to be one of relatedness that that connectedness yeah uh i feel like i under they they understand me i understand them yeah but i'm not I, sure I, 
I, I, I agree. I mean, context, you know, we're a group of behavioral scientists, so context matters <laughs> an awful lot. Uh, it, it does, but I, I think you're exactly right about that. Um, so when in the book we talk about the importance of a backstory, and, and that's actually um, we, we account for that in the vulnerability chapter. Mm. Um, and actually we, we cite evidence that shows that, you know, for example, in things like talent shows, you know, um, America's Got Talent, you know, X Factor, Dancing with the Stars, these, these kind of things that, um, that often the, it's not just the, the skill and the competence of the performer, it's their, their ability to connect to the audience because they have an interesting backstory or sometimes kind of like a, uh, uh, a, a a vulnerability to their backstory. You know, they came through difficult times. They, you know, uh, overcome, you know, significant challenges early in their life. You know, some commentators have actually gone so far as to actually say that the that, that talent actually doesn't count for as much in the likelihood for them winning a, a competition as, as a good, compelling, connected backstory. Um, mm. so, very, so very much a vulnerability in that context, yeah. Do you think it makes a difference whether the backstory is provided in advance of the performance or after? I, yeah, I would think that the uh, you you want to frame it in advance so that people come in and the way that they process it is it takes on a whole new different meaning rather than having to retrospectively process what you've just heard. Um, it, it kind of primes you uh, ready for something you're about to hear um but you know i think it is interesting i think there's uh some very very good work um on the different types of backstory and when each will be effective so the typical one being the kind of underdog backstory of the kind of you know two guys working in a, a basement or a garage or something who then make this multi-million dollar company um and and that evokes a lot of compassion um and, and you know it makes them relatable it's the success story of coming from nowhere um as opposed to just you know having it handed to you on a plate um and and so in in uh, in some of the studies that uh, have been conducted on this then they find that people who are a kind of um, more compassionate mindset or particularly kind of lower power groups um, like to hear this kind of underdog story. Um, whereas people who are kind of at the top of, you know, specifically primed to feel pride in the experimental studies, um, like a kind of top dog, they, 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 they go more for a hard kind of character. Um, and, you know, I think Donald Trump's an interesting one because you see him kind of trying to pull both of these where he was, you know, saying, oh, I got a small loan and made myself, I'm a kind of self-made millionaire. Of course, the reality was he was always a <laughs> very rich individual. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, you know, flaunting his business successes um, to, to show how on top he is, how, how kind of competent and, and uh, high profile, high positioned. It's a fascinating, he's a fascinating example in that instance of where fame and riches crowd out competence and experience. Um, you, you know, and, and actually, you know, there, there's another, there's a really interesting uh, guy, uh, Zach Tamala, actually, he's at Stanford. He, he actually did his PhD under, under Bob Cialdini. And he's actually done research that actually shows that, that often audiences you know, when faced with this dilemma, who should I follow? Who should I support? Who should I listen to? That very often uh, potential can actually be a much more compelling reason to listen than the reality of someone's experience. 
Yeah, um, you wrote about that in the book. Yeah, yeah. and I yeah. think, you know, to a certain extent, that actually explains some of the reason why, um, you know, to some, you know, Trump was this compelling leader. Um, you know, he, he didn't have a day of experience in terms of public service, whereas Clinton, you could argue, was probably the most qualified presidential candidate ever that ran mm-hmm. for office. And maybe that's something about Trump. Maybe his potential just made him a little bit more interesting. Um, and with that, you know, infamy and, and rich uh, resources that he actually had that, that, as Joe said a few months ago, really does speak to that more kind of conservative type of, you know, I've, I've got success on my side, you know, I'm you know, big and rich and I'm this. Maybe that combination of things just worked out well um, and served him, um, served him well in that instance. Well, it, I think it it's did. I think it's interesting because you talked about the backstory, and he had uh, the Apprentice for how many years, which was almost this this you know television backstory about him that he was able to actually curate and to a certain degree control the message that was going out about who he was and the type of person he was to to you know, position that in, in, in a way that I think probably to your point, uh, impacted, uh, a certain contingent of the population to, to view him in a certain way. So, okay. You teed up this idea of, um, we were talking about America's got talent or UK got talent, uh, and the underdog story. I want to, I want to get a little closer to the musical side of the, of our discussion because I can't resist. And, and I also can't resist because Steve did give me a thumbs up when I mentioned music earlier. No. So that's just, I'm just going to take that as a very All positive right, there sign. You go. Um, so, uh, so let's, let's start with sort of a softball. I kind of want to get into the, is there any kind of correlation between the hard and soft things and what's on your playlist? But let's just start with what's on your playlist. What, what, what Joe, why don't you start? What, what are you listening to right now? Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for Spotify's Discover Weekly algorithm. Um, once you give it enough data, it just seems to generate amazing hidden gems. Um, <laughs> most of them on my playlist are kind of soul funk uh, kind of songs. Um, so Betty a Swan is one of the hidden gems I've discovered. Um, a, a kind of solely 60s uh, singer who, who you know, has actually a really depressing life story when I looked into it. But the music <laughs> is just incredible. And she just doesn't seem to have been recognized for it at all. Um, cool. So it's Betty. It's spelled kind of funny. It's B-E-T-T-Y-E, I think. Um, maybe it's Betty. I, I don't know. But okay. one, of, one of my recommendations. <laughs> Where's she from? From the U.S. She is. She's U.S. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. That, that, that sounds cool. Who else? Who, so are, are there other, do you like the classic funk or the classic soul? Do you go back to the, the sixties? Yeah, uh, no, a lot of sixties, uh, stuff. I mean, uh, yeah. Otis Redding, um, is, is a good example. Um, of, of one of these classic, uh, cases. I'm trying to think who else, um, would it be on my list? Any, uh, any, yeah. Any of the, uh, is it possible that you might like Prince or any of the famous Minnesota musicians that uh, came from around our, our neck of the woods? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Prince is a classic. <laughs> um. Yeah, Steve, how about you? What, what's on what's on your playlist? Well, I'm, 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 I'm kind of, as I'm getting older, I'm finding myself uh, kind of summarizing my playlist a lot more. I'm, I'm more likely to listen more and more to music that I've listened to over the years than kind of open myself up to 
to new things, which is probably not a good thing. You know, I'm um, so I'm a, I'm a kid of the eighties, so. I love the new romantic stuff. Um, probably my favorite band of all time would be uh, the Electric Light Orchestra, uh, you know, okay. and the Beatles, Beatles, of course. Um, yeah. And actually, the so the band that I've seen most recently, which who I'd seen a, a number of times before, who just seem to get better and better the older they get, is New Order. So I'm a massive fan. I'm a massive New Order fan. Um, I, th- but, you're sp- I think you're speaking Kurt's language on that one. All okay. right, there you <laughs> go. Okay. Um, and um, but I, I did. I, I I was introduced to something uh, recently, so it's new to me. I'm probably going to mention this. You go, oh my god, they've been going for years and years. But um, I again on Spotify, I came across a band called the Baseballs, um, who essentially they do covers of really really big selling pop hits, you know, so think Britney, Taylor Swift, you know, Prince, Abba, these kind of things, but they do it to a kind of like jazz, you know, bass kind of type of background. It's, it's just the baseballs. They, they do these incredible covers of ridiculously popular pop hits. Um, and they're brilliant. Um, you know, we will make sure that they're included in the show notes because that's, that sounds like a very interesting recommendation as well. Uh, and, and of course, we love hearing about new music. Um, okay, so so what about this hard versus soft? Is it possible that your playlist might be dominated by by the more chaotic uh, the types of singers, uh, uh, more dominant singers versus uh, <laughs> songwriters that are going after uh, backstory and connectedness? I just I, well, I know I just wonder whether or not the selection of your music. Um, it determines uh, in that moment in time whether you are setting out to be a hard messenger or a soft messenger. That is, um, that's, I mean, that's where I was going because I'm looking at, I'm thinking about my playlist and I have some very hard, angry music as we've talked about yeah. before. <laughs> and yet I have some very soft, melodic, kind of, you know, uh, various different pieces. And I'm like, oh, all right. So do I take on a different, uh, you know, persona as, as each of those goes? And, and anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Joe, Joe, you have a thought on this. Well, no, I was just thinking personally, I I mean, all my music is very happy, um, (laughs) very much in the soft camp. Um, But actually, it's interesting because happy is not necessarily soft. I mean, I think you'd think of an acoustic guitar kind of Ed Sheeran, um, you know, some of the or even Adele, some of these kind of sadder songs. They're still soft. I wouldn't describe them as hard songs. Um, So maybe happiness and positivity was not... uh, I mean, my, my playlists are all very positive and uplifting, um, but but maybe that's not a symptom of soft. I'm trying to get into the nitty gritty of what, what music is hard messenger, what soft messenger. Well, well, Steve, I want to go back to New Order, right? And so if you think, because uh, again, this is actually music I can talk about when most of the time Tim can dominate this conversation, but, you know, Joy Division you know, prior to that, and they were really, I mean, if you listen to, to Joy Division's lyrics and, and even the music, it was, I mean, you know, talking death and a whole bunch of, of down and New Order when, you know, they, they came and, and uh, you know, rebranded the band, um, uh, you know, kind of as the out, as the outfall after um, uh, oh, the lead it, Yeah, yeah he, committed, well, he committed suicide, didn't he? That was the yeah, he um, you know, and they, they kind of came with a more poppy, you know, fun kind of sound and, and had a different perspective. And, and, you know, from that perspective, I wonder if that, that hard versus soft element was uh, a key, key piece there. At least among, for the primary songwriter. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think you could be onto something there, you know, the, um, 
you know that that predisposition that the the Ian had towards the more kind of you know much more melodramatic kind of almost depressive type of of of, of, of um, kind of music, and then Bernie Summer comes in and. Yeah. You know, it's it's a lot more you know percussion trained guy yeah. who's a lot more upbeat, and then I, I guess you know that you're talking about. Well, Peter Hook tried to put some deeper yeah. into it, but not really, and, and they're all going at it. So yeah, yeah and it's kind of like yeah. late 70s, 78, 79. So the the electronic era started to come in. So you know, um, you know, tracks like Seas Like Us, and then ultimately you know Blue Monday, and you know, yeah. and, and, and the rest. Kind of they they probably didn't have that technical capability in the in in the mid seventies when when Joy right. Division were leading. And so yeah, there's probably probably a, a, a you know a combination of those things. What's interesting to me about music and messenger effects though is is think about how it works in reverse. So how often these uh, quite well known music- musicians are listened to on subjects that they have no right to talk about. Mm. Um, and I mean, th- there's actually a recent example um, of, uh, you know, in China, there was a, a significant challenge that the health uh, boards in China had to deal with when uh, a, a pop star, a Cantonese pop star claimed on WhatsApp that, you know, anyone that received a flu vaccine, there was a 90% chance they'd actually get the virus. Um, you know, so so there's someone that's like well-known, you know, in the public spotlight you know rich and famous but has no medical training and no right to say those kind of things but it is being believed in that instance so yeah you, you you've you kind of talked about messenger effects applied to music um but actually the musicians and and their undue influence sometimes when it's not warranted is is going in the other direction so there's a there's, so. there's a well, connection there as well it, you, but you, we see that all the time with any famous actress, actor, you know, musician, yeah. various things. You guys even wrote, I mean, I think about Taylor Swift and, right. you know, her her uh, impact on the, the midterm elections and various different pieces. So, uh, it, which is, again, fascinating to me. And, and going back to, there was a, there was an ad in the U.S. I don't know if it was ever played over in, in um uh, the UK for many years, which was an actor who, who was, you know, promoting a, a medical kind of thing. And he said, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Right. And so, yeah. you, you know, going back to your, your traits, right. He doesn't have competence, but yet he, you know, he, he just has this acting thing yet. They're trying, I think, to build some of that competence by saying, I played a doctor on TV to to make that connection. And it's really well, yeah. And he was, I, 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 and I'm reminded also of it's, in that instance in in 2002, I think it was there was a quite a well known survey that was published in the US where they said, um, you know, who is the most popular president of all time? You know, and um, and and the number one popular president had never ever served a day in the White House. Um, it was, yeah, it, it was Martin Sheen who played Jed yep. Bartlett in the West Wing. Oh. <laughs> so, wow. So, yeah. So, so, so there we go. And you could probably think, of, you know, 2002, 2003, some of the conflicts that were actually going on and who was actually, you know, in yep. the administration at the time, why perhaps, you know, someone as connected and as approachable and a, a kind of a tenured prof- economics Nobel Prize winning professor, all those kind of messenger traits you yeah. know, combined to, to make this person, wow, this not the perhaps most noted president of all time, but the person in this instance that we would prefer to have to have. Yeah. <laughs> and so in that survey, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. So well, Chaldi, you, you know, 
we we talked to uh, Bob Cialdini about music, and we talked about playlists, and and Bob was quick to point out about how how he uses self priming by uh, or or priming in with music by making sure that when he's introduced on stage, he has a stinger, he has a introductory yeah. musical piece that is uh, Aretha Franklin's "Think," and he's using "Think" as the as the song to get people in that just in that completely subconscious, instantaneous. Uh, state of being of I'm going to cause you to think I'm, I hope to be introducing something to you that's going to be different. Do you guys use priming? Do you guys music to prime uh, in your presentations or, uh, or in I your, don't, but that's a great idea. I'm now thinking, uh, you know, maybe I'll play respect. <laughs> maybe right said Fred, I'm too sexy, Joe. <laughs> One good example recently was uh, Bernie Sanders, after he had his heart attack, came on to ACDC back in black. Oh, yes, there you go. Um, That was it, wasn't it? He came and uh, yeah, it was his his I'm back, what do they call it? His comeback or something. And he came and spoke to 25,000 people in Queens and, you know, it seemed to work pretty well. I think that that's a that that's a good point to just kind of you know draw to a close of this. Yes, is a, a a back and whack and right said Fred. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get much better than that. So Sam and Joe, thank you. This has been really informative, and I I, I know our listeners will get a great deal of information from this. And and again, for our listeners, please, it's a it messengers is a great book. Uh, where can they where can they go out to get it? Is it uh, available? Everywhere, yeah, it, it's available everywhere. So all the usual online um, book bookstores. Uh, it's available as an ebook as well. Um, you can go to the website and find out more. You can even actually, there's even a free quiz that you can do that will let you know what your primary messenger trait is. Um, <sighs> it takes five or six minutes, entirely free. You go to messengersthebook.com. Uh, you answer eight or nine questions that uh, Joe and I and a couple of our research team have put together, and it will give you a profile of what your preferred messenger trait is. Great. And if they wanted to uh, follow you or uh, you know, t- get in touch with you, is it Twitter? Uh, where, how, how, do, how can they get, uh, find out more about you guys? Well, in the US, uh, you know, they can contact either me or Bob uh, through the influenceatwork.co.uk or influenceatwork.com website. Uh, we're both on Twitter. Um, uh, were you Joe Marks yeah, I'm, 13? I'm Joe Marks 13, good memory. Yeah. All right. And, and I'm Science of Yes. Um, but you can find us. Once you, once you, I mean, if you Google Steve Martin, once you get um, uh, past that imposter of mine, um, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll find me. Um, not, I'm a constant, not as funny. I'm a, right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a constant source of disappointment to hotel check-in staff. <laughs> no, actually, I, 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 is it kind of fun, though? Like, oh, you're, you're Steve Martin? Do you, do you get that a lot? Yeah, but I don't get the upgraded room afterwards. I invariably get the room next to the elevator. (laughs) It's Uh, been a pleasure, Steve and Joe. Thank you so much for both of you taking time. This has been so much fun to talk with both of you. Good to see you. All the best. Cheers.
Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral grooves conversation with Steve and Joe, have a free flowing discussion, and talk about whatever else comes into our messenger influenced brains. Yes, messenger, messenger, messenger. Yeah. Man, just. So, so there's a quote from the book that I love, and it's, it's actually in the introduction, which, you know. Um, which, you, which you were able to get through? I. <laughs> <laughs> I got more than the introduction read through. Come on, I read the. No, I know. Yeah, I know anyway, I know. Uh, but it, it, it's this, and I think it's it. It was it struck me. I underlined it. I started. I did all that kind of stuff. Um, frequently, we tend to judge an idea not on its merits, but according to how we judge the person putting it forward. That's the thesis of the book, right there. That is the thesis of the book. I yeah. think it is well written. It is insightful. There's been lots of research on it. And it and it really makes me sad. It is saddening, isn't it? It, it is. It, it 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 is this element of human nature that we put more emphasis on who is telling us something than the merits of the content of the idea. Right, and this is part of the problem: is that it it dilutes the idea of a meritocracy, where yes. where someone with better ideas could get ahead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you look at the idea of again, as we talked in the in the episode, if you say something and it goes nowhere, and then a week later I come in and say something, and all of a sudden it, it gathers all this traction. And mm-hmm. it's because of not the merits of the idea, but because people like me better than they like you. <laughs> oh, well, we've <laughs> Everybody knows that. So you're not- <laughs> Or vice you're not, you're versa. Not, you're not sharing it's, anything you know, new there. <laughs> no, I, and we, we joke, we joke. But it is this idea that, you know, signs of wealth, of power, of the, you know, the other attributes that they talk about are, are as important or sometimes more important uh, to the content of the, the message or the idea itself. And yeah, that- right. I, I know it happens. We we I understand that it happens. It is one of those things that I just wish didn't. Yeah. Because I think the world would be a much better place if we were able to judge ideas based on the content of the ideas and not, you know, the character who is is presenting those but ideas. But that's hard. That's really hard, especially with the number of ideas that our brains are being exposed to these days. Yeah. It, it, it was one thing to, to have a brain that's set up to be thoughtful about ideas uh, 500 years ago when there ju- I just don't think that there was as much new ideas coming at medieval uh, life, you know, uh, yeah. than there is today. There's just so much. I, I sometimes read, man, I, I look at... Um, I look at Twitter sometimes and I mm-hmm. see people who have 20, 60, 80, 100, 200,000 millions of followers and they'll say they'll have some trite little um, you know commentary like you know it's um, it's all about the goal and not about the you know it's all about the journey not about the end it's like and that's that's their tweet and hundreds of people liked it and and it's been retweeted dozens of times and you go that's okay that's that's it's a good thought but really, like, if I put that out there, zero it would have been like crickets. The the internet wouldn't have given one flying flip that I put it out there. But a, but someone with a lot of followers, all of a sudden, now, and this just reinforces to me that it isn't about the quality of the message; it's about the messenger. 
It is about the messenger. It's, a, it's who versus what, right? Yeah, and and uh, you know, and and Steve and Joe talk. I, I think they bring in a really insightful insight about what it is. What are some of the qualities and the characteristics of the messenger that lend that to be a more influential message, right? Yeah. And, and it goes back to you know Steve's work with with Cialdini and persuasion, and which was looking as he, he eloquently said at the beginning. Look, we we looked at the content. And what makes the content persuasive, right? Yeah. And you looked at some of the human interactions of how you're working within their reciprocity and other aspects of that. But you didn't look at necessarily just the messenger in and of itself. right? Uh, and so I think that was a really, uh, I think it's powerful, um, you know, um, Chris Graves from Ogilvy uh, in in one of the conversations that we saw back in a couple of years ago that he was talking about he brought up the same concept same thing. yes he did you know the messenger effect and the idea that in in today's hyper political world uh, the that the messenger uh, has much more sway over our uh, perception of an idea than the actual content of it, which which kind of gets to the hard and soft traits. Yes, you know, right. Uh, and I loved, I I love the way that these guys have broken down uh, these uh, and made explicit these specific traits because it helps by putting a name on on these um, on these things. Uh, I think it helps me think about oh, what are people using and what are people responding to. Yeah, uh, you know, he t- they, uh, one of the greatest examples was in this in this time of chaos, we really we tend to defer to the harder traits, right? Right. The the harder harder messenger traits tend to get more traction. So again, just to, to those those traits again, uh, established status, status, social economic position, right? Competence, mm-hmm. dominance, and attractiveness are those hard hard. You know traits. Yeah. You know which you know all but attractiveness. I I would I would be all right on. I think. <laughs> I think you could even get attractiveness. Oh no, God, no, <laughs> no. But and then on the soft messenger traits, right? There's warmth. There's vulnerability. There's trustworthiness. There's charisma. So you look at those and you go, all right, which are those? Which of those traits do people elicit? And then how does that drive? The way that people interpret their their messages. That so again, going on that that component and going into the tribal nature that we have and the politicized nature that yeah, we have. Yeah. The another interesting piece that they brought up is some of the. All right, so are the hard traits more aligned with some of the conservative notions of of what that is, and versus the soft traits are more aligned with liberals, and does that just Feed into the whole, yeah. you know, like snowflake how, versus you know, you know, real gun patriot. Bearing yeah. patriot. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, um, it, it, I guess it might, right? It, it that's that's certainly possible, and it, it it didn't sound like Joe and Steve have got everything wrapped up on that. They don't have a bow tied around that part of the story, but it did remind me of Jonathan Haidt's uh, work on the on the moral foundations. Yeah, it does. I mean, and there's there's a definite difference in you know how people. Come at the world, yeah. which influences or is being influenced um, by uh, some of the the teams that they have so called joined. Right. So right. whether those be political or whether they be you know cultural, whether yeah. they be religious, tribal stuff, basically. Yeah. So yes, um, I also uh, wanted to talk a little bit about truthfulness versus trustworthiness. 
Why? Because you think I'm not truthful? Nor, nor are you trustworthy, really. <laughs> so I <laughs> so. have none of the qualities and, there. And, and Kurt, I've been meaning to have this conversation for a long time. So <laughs> are you sitting down? <laughs> I'm sitting across from you. Of course I'm sitting down. No, it's all right. Let's go. Well, Truth, I, I, truthfulness I, versus trustworthiness. What really, really struck me was that, that comment about jo- Boris Johnson, you know, that um, 75% of, of the people said, yeah, I think, I think that he lied. <laughs> You know, a pretty high degree of agreement that people said, yeah, you know, he he did lie. But is he trustworthy? The people who were in support of Boris Johnson's position, which was to leave, which was a Brexit, basically had no effect on their perception. Yeah. Like, like, did, was he still trustworthy? Hell yes. He's yeah, still, totally. he's, he's lying to achieve the goal that I agree with. That I agree and with. so that is a trustworthy person. <laughs> right, because they're willing to lie for something that I believe in that's, that will defend my tribe, right? Yeah. It, it, oh, man. It, it goes back again, you know, we've ad nauseum talked about, you know, Trump's statement about saying could shoot somebody in the middle of Times Square and his followers would still be all they, for him. That's right. He'd never be convicted. Which is a scary thought and which is the ultimate conclusion of of what this book is saying is basically if we get to the point where the messenger becomes such a figure that they can do no wrong, then we have a really tainted, I think, uh, society. Yeah. And, which goes into, so... What we really didn't discuss are are, are there ways to combat this? Are there right. ways? Can we do it as an individual? So I don't fall prey because I, I what I I know I fall prey to this. I know I do. Yes. Um. But it's hard to and, it's hard to you know know when and how. And your followers fall prey to you. <laughs> all all, <laughs> all six zero of them. of them. Yeah. No. No. But right. I mean, this is a big question in my mind as to how we can easily combat. How we can say, wait a minute, I, I'm paying more attention to the messenger and not the message. And I go. I'm, I'm not being rational. I'm just. I'm using much more motivated thinking to get me to defend my tribal position than to actually think critically about a, an issue. Well, and I would like to. You know, and we can't do this all the time, but occasionally I do try to to, to do this when I read something. And I, I know who has written it. Yes. Can I? Can I? What? How would I feel about it if it was written by somebody in a a, a different party? Whether it be you know uh, the Democrats or the Republicans in America here, or you know conservatives and Tory? No, what? I've got, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. The, you know, in in England. Well, well yeah, the Tories. See, I don't the, understand those Tories. two, so I would I would it be wouldn't, better wouldn't matter. going over there. Yeah, right? Tories are labor. But uh, this kind of reminds me of something that you talk about often: is the high school um, valedictorian speech. Yeah, we talked about that. I think in the in the episode. Yeah, yeah, where again, where they bring up the idea that hey, they're cheering for it, but then they say, oh wait, that wasn't by. X, it was actually by Y, and now people are booing about it. And right. that, in that case, it was a Val Victorian in a southern state talking about making a statement, quoting what he said was Bush, or not Bush, a Trump. And in reality, it was quote from Obama. Uh, and and, yeah. and there was that visceral reaction in the crowd. And that happens more than we like to believe. But if you find yourself in a situation where somebody presents something to you and you're cheering for it, and all of a sudden they go, oh, wait, 
that wasn't said by X, it was said by Y, and all of a sudden you find yourself booing, you need to take a hard look at your yes. opinion. That's right. Because it is more noble to really be attached to the merit of the content than it is to the to the messenger themselves. And I I, I think there are, you know, opportunities for us, opportunities for us as individuals, opportunities for us as a society to do that and to say, if the shoe was on the other foot, how would I feel about it? Yeah. You look at going on right now in the impeachment impeachment hearings and you see both sides entrenched in their worldview. And if you could just literally, you, it's, it's amazing to me. And it's on both sides where you see, uh, uh, video clips of some of the politicians from the Clinton impeachment who were in politics at that point. And what they were saying then is 180 degrees opposite of what they are saying now. And it goes on both sides. But there is Because they're defending their tribe. They're defending their tribe. They're defending the messenger. Yeah. And uh, that, again, going back to the meritosity, right? Ideas... Concepts, truth, trustworthiness, should be valued based on their intrinsic, you know, components. So, and it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to do that. Yeah, and you know, so I'm in Rotary. I think I've talked about that before, but in Rotary has this four way test, uh, and the first one of the the four way test is: is it the truth? And uh, whatever you think about Rotary, it's a you know, I think it's a great, you know, um, social uh, service organization that's out there. But they ask you, the, you know, you take the four-way test and, and all the things I do think and say, you know, is it the truth? Is it beneficial to all concerned? Will it build, build goodwill and better friendships? Um, I, I can't remember the fourth. I always forget the fourth one. Who knows? I'm probably going to get kicked out of Rotary now. You're done. You're done. (laughs) But but I like that idea because if you actually can sit there and if you, you know, think, do, and say, right, is it the truth? And so if you take uh, an idea and you just run it through that lens, um, it might help us. So I hope, I hope, I hope we do. I hope we do too. Yeah. Okay. This is kind of a downer of a grooving session. But, you know, there's all, the, all kinds of We didn't of do a weekly, weekly, weekly. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank God we didn't do that. Boy, I'm glad no one mentioned weekly, <laughs> weekly, weekly. <laughs> This time, no, I'm glad. Uh, but, so. but we want to thank our listeners for hanging in there and uh, and sharing the story because one of the greatest things that that happens with Behavioral Grooves as a podcast is when someone likes it enough to say to a friend, hey, you got to check this out. Yeah. And to maybe share a specific episode so it's not just big and you know read this book, but it's read a chapter, try right. this specifically. And this would be a great... Um, episode to share with somebody because it because our discussion with Steve and Joe was just terrific. So you're saying that this episode could be the gateway drug into the <laughs> behavioral grooves? It could be. Yeah. Could, there you go. What's your be. gateway drug and episode? Then we're going to get you hooked. <laughs> and then... You're yes. going to be smoking that pipe every week. There you go. <laughs> All right. Oh, well, thank you, listeners. And remember to stay tuned for the uh, bonus track that Tim is going to do in just a minute. Just a minute. It's gonna. He's gonna do it. Really. I am. I am. I really yeah. am. All right. <laughs> I go. promise. Bonus track <laughs> coming right up.
there. This is Tim with the bonus track for our discussion with Steve Martin and Joe Marks, the authors of Messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. The big takeaways from what we discussed come from Steve and Joe's new book and hew along the lines of the hard and soft traits that messengers use to effectively communicate their messages. Joe and Steve researched these traits and broke them down for the book after observing what a person might say that makes no sense yet gets total credit from his or her audience. They noticed that a person could tell very obvious lies and would never lose their trustworthiness if those lies were a means to a desirable end. This is a great example of how the human experience is illogical or irrational or both. The hard messenger traits are often aligned with more conservative thinking and they include status, socioeconomic position, competence, dominance, and attractiveness. The soft messenger traits are more along the lines of warmth, vulnerability, trustworthiness, and charisma. And they tend to be more aligned with liberal thinking. And that leads me to the groove idea for the week. Kurt and I would like to ask you to give some consideration to how you process messages. Think about how you are impacted by the messenger. Take a single conversation or a message that you received this week and look at it closely. It could be a one-on-one conversation with your boss, a client, a neighbor, or a family member. How did the messenger impact the way you received the message? Or as an alternative, think about how you responded to something that you heard in the news or on a podcast. Analyze your response. Were you influenced by who was talking or by the source? Did some of the hard or soft traits of that person or source used impact how you felt and compared it to the content of the message itself? And as a not so subtle reminder, please take a few seconds to give us a quick review. Our numbers are growing because of you. Downloads last month were our best yet and we're on track for this month to be our very best month yet again. And we are still very much focused on what you think and how you feel about our podcast. Please share a note with the world on just how you feel, or if you're more shy, just drop us a line. Thanks, and keep on grooving.